0: Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law. Brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, your host for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us. A personal note before we dive into today's news this will be my last episode of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast because my last day with Indiana Lawyer was February 3rd, a few days before this episode airs. I'm leaving for a new career opportunity, but I've enjoyed being your host for the last 15 months. And don't worry, Olivia and Alexa will keep the podcast going, and they'll have new voices for you soon. Until then, let's dive into today's headlines, as well as my interview with Mike Witte, a senior judge and former head of the Disciplinary Commission, who chatted with me about the Asian Pacific American Bar Association of Indiana. Today is Wednesday, February 8th, 2023, and these are your headlines. To start us off, here's Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington with the latest on Magistrate Judge Matthew Brookman's nomination to the Indiana Southern District Court.
1: On January 25th, Magistrate Judge Matthew Brookman began the confirmation process with his first hearing before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. He's been nominated to the seat on the Indiana Southern District Court that will open up when Judge Richard Young takes senior status. Senator Todd Young introduced Brookman to the committee, noting that members of the Evansville legal community where Brookman is based speak highly of the magistrate judge. Young and Indiana Senator Mike Braun, both Republicans, are supporting Brookman's nomination and have turned in their blue slips in his favor. Brookman introduced himself to the committee and briefly shared about his family and his background, but otherwise he didn't speak much during the hearing. In fact, only one committee question was directed at him specifically. That question came from Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy, who grilled the nominees on the meaning of originalism. Here's what Brookman had to say. You'll hear Brookman speak first, then Kennedy.
2: My understanding of originalism is the notion that the Constitution has an enduring and a fixed nature, an enduring quality and a fixed nature to it.
0: What does that mean?
2: It means that the words uh, matter and that the, word, that the, uh, that the words of the, that the framers use to draft the Constitution matter and that it has a fixed quality to it and has an enduring nature. Well, how do you determine the fixed quality? Who, who determines what the words mean from uh, that, perspective? Senator, in my uh, time as a magistrate judge, I've not dealt with issues of constitutional interpretation, but my understanding is that uh, you would begin with the language of the Constitution itself.
1: Yeah, okay, I agree with that. Carl Tobias is a professor at the University of Richmond School of Law in Virginia and a nationally recognized expert on federal judicial selection. I talked to Carl after the confirmation hearing, and he says the fact that the committee didn't ask many questions of Brookman is a sign that he's a non-controversial nominee. Carl says he expects the committee vote to go in Brookman's favor with bipartisan support. As for when that vote will happen, Tobias guesses it will be sometime this month. Brookman's nomination would then go to the full Senate, which could confirm him in late March or early April. We'll keep an eye out for those votes, so stay tuned.
0: Thanks, Olivia. Staying in the Indiana Southern District, here's IL reporter Alexa Schrake, who was there on February 1st when the court officially opened its new learning center. Alexa, what can you tell us?
3: The U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana hosted the grand opening of its new Learning Center in the birch Baugh Federal Building last week. The Federal Court Learning Center has been a to-do list item for 15 years that can now be crossed off. The Learning Center has activity stations and informational handouts that discuss the history and the role of the federal court system. It is geared toward middle and high school students in the hopes of increasing civic education and engagement. Activities like You Be the Juror and You Be the Judge take students through the process of deciding or presiding over a case, providing case details and allowing students to decide if they would act the same way as the judge or jury. Along the walls is historical information about Indiana's federal courts and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago. Indiana Southern District Court Chief Judge Tanya Walton-Pratt described the Learning Center as a, quote, happy place before concluding the grand opening with a strike of her gavel. The center is now open to tours and field trips.
0: Now let's shift gears to the Indiana Northern District Court, where a lawsuit has been filed against the City of Gary Common Council for failing to complete the city's redistricting by December 31st, 2022. Under Indiana Code, redistricting must be completed by the second year after a U.S. census is completed. In this case, that would mean redistricting following the 2020 census would have been done by 2022. According to the lawsuit, which was filed by attorney and NAACP leader Barbara Bowling Williams, the city of Gary lost 11,000 residents between the 2010 and 2020 censuses. That means that now, without redistricting, the current council districts have a 24 population deviation. The law doesn't require districts to have exactly equal proportions, but according to the lawsuit, courts have held that a deviation of more than 10% could be an equal protection violation. Bowling Williams is asking the federal court for a preliminary injunction and temporary restraining order prohibiting the Lake County Board of Elections and Registration from holding an election until the district lines are redrawn. The Elections Board and its director are also named as defendants in the lawsuit. The courts aren't the only place where redistricting is being addressed. In the Indiana General Assembly, lawmakers are considering House Bill 1116, which includes an amendment that would give Gary and other cities that do not redistrict before January 1st until May 15th to finish their new maps. If the city governments don't meet the May 15th deadline, the Indiana Secretary of State would adopt a new district plan or rectify the existing one. The amended version of House Bill 1116 passed the Elections and Apportionment Committee last month. It's now waiting for a hearing before the Ways and Means Committee. Speaking of legislation, let's throw it back to Alexa for news about a Senate resolution that would restrict the right to bail in Indiana.
3: Thanks, Jordan. Senate Joint Resolution 1 would deny bail to defendants believed to pose a, quote, substantial risk to the public, regardless of what offense they are charged with. Currently, bail can only be denied for murder or treason. Although the resolution is moving forward, it has received a lot of negative feedback throughout the legislative process. One particularly vocal opponent has been Democratic Senator Rodney Pohl, who proposed two amendments that failed. One of Pohl's amendments would have included a list of certain case types that could result in the denial of bail. Here's Pohl speaking about SJR 1.
0: You essentially have not been able to present any evidence as to whether or not you're innocent uh, of the crime that you're, you're, you're essentially accused of. You could be essentially completely, uh, you could be absolutely uh, innocent of, the, of what you're actually accused of. But the court deems, well,
2: you know, you, you kind of uh, had a little bit of in with the law in the past and you run with some folks that are not, uh, not the best people, so we deem you a risk. We're going to hold you without bail, meaning that you'll likely lose your job. You will, may lose your kids. You may lose your family. Um, you know, isn't that a, that's a potential result of, of what this constitutional amendment could do?
3: But Republican Senator Eric Cook, who authored the resolution, said the measure is about public safety. Here's Cook speaking about the resolution.
2: Amendment of Article 1, Section 17 of the Indiana Constitution is a necessary first step in this process and in recognizing the primary importance of public safety when it comes to pretrial release decisions.
3: SJR 1 has cleared the Indiana Senate and has been sent to the House for consideration. It is currently awaiting a committee assignment and hearing. Back to you, Jordan.
0: Before we wrap up today's headlines, I have a quick update for you on the legal battle over abortion playing out in the Indiana Supreme Court. You may remember that in our last episode, I told you about the Supreme Court oral arguments on the constitutionality of Senate Enrolled Act 1, which is the legislation creating the state's near-total abortion ban. Well, that lawsuit wasn't the only one pending before the High Court. The state was also seeking emergency transfer of a ruling that enjoined SEA 1 as a violation of the state's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. On January 30th, the justices declined to grant emergency transfer to the Rifra case for now, which means the appeal will proceed in the Court of Appeals. We're still waiting on a ruling from the justices in the constitutional case. Stay tuned to the Indiana Lawyer website for the latest updates. Lastly, here's a preview of my very last story for Indiana Lawyer, which you can read in the February 15th issue. After 30 years of talks, Elkhart County is finally creating a consolidated courts campus. For our listeners who haven't been to Elkhart County, there are currently two courthouses in the county in Elkhart and Goshen, and they're 11 miles apart. Now, everyone will be in the same place, which I might add will be outfitted with the latest technology. On top of the new digs, Elkhart is currently restructuring its courts into three organized divisions, criminal, civil, and family law. As you can imagine, everyone I've spoken with involved is thrilled with the developments. Learn more by reading the next issue of Indiana Lawyer. Okay, that's it for this week's headlines. As always, head over to TheIndianaLawyer.com for the latest legal news or to learn more about any of the stories we just covered today. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear my conversation with Senior Judge Whitty. Thanks for being faithful listeners. Take care.
2: Taft. Today's modern law firm at Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and
0: work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit TaftLaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Senior Judge Mike Whitty in studio with us today. Judge Whitty, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Uh, Judge Whitty is currently the president of the Asian Pacific American Bar Association of Indiana. As some background, in 1984, Judge Whitty was elected as the first Asian American to serve as judge in the state. Uh, His 25-year judicial career included service as judge of the Dearborn County Court from 1985 to 2000, judge of the Dearborn Superior Court, number one, from 2000 to 2008, and judge of the Wayne Superior Court, number one, uh, 2009. From 2010 to 2021, when he retired, Judge Whitty was the executive director of the Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Commission. Uh, Whitty has served and led numerous state and national committees, has been a panelist at many national programs on diversifying the judiciary and improving diversity pipelines to a judicial career. Uh, He's an Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law grad and continues to provide educational updates at the school. Uh, So kind of to begin with, why did you decide to pursue a career in the law? And was it your, uh, always your intention to be a judge out of law school?
2: Um, first of all, it wasn't even my uh, intention to be a lawyer when I was an undergrad. Uh, and uh, my mom always wanted me to be an architect. And I, I've got those skills. And uh, my wife and I, we have built two homes. Uh, we were the general contractor. I drew the blueprints myself. So uh, maybe I should have went down that road, but uh, while I was an undergrad uh, at i u bloomington that's when I started getting an interest in law, and uh, so that probably developed about my junior year of undergrad and uh, went to law school from there and As far as judicial career, no, that wasn't on the horizon or you know it wasn't anything that I had my sights on at all. It was just kind of a um, When an opportunity presents itself, uh, especially a professional opportunity, you don't want to turn it down. And my local bar association, they were at odds with an incumbent judge. And at that time in 1984, the pay for a judge was not very good at all. And nobody in our local bar wanted to run against the the incumbent that they were uncomfortable with. So, uh, because their practices were more lucrative than what a judge pay was. So it was, Hey Mike, you're the new guy. You're, you know, going to get a pay raise here. If you get elected, the pay for a judge in 1984 was $36,000. Wow. So, uh, I ran and, uh, the bar association pretty much was behind me. I mean, there were, you know, the incumbent had his supporters too, but, uh, that is how I became a judge. It wasn't like I came out of law school and thought, you know, someday I want to be a judge. And um, so I kind of did my career upside down because I was only 27 years old. And uh, when I say my career is upside down is, you know, most judges become judges towards the middle and end of their careers sure. or middle of their careers and finish out their careers. Right. I did mine on the front end and, you know, by the time I'd had 24 years in, you know, I was kind of burned out, but things worked out well for me. So
0: what do you remember about that first year?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, I can tell you that uh, as I look back on it, boy, was I wet behind the ears. I tried to display as much confidence as I could, knowing that people would come into court and see this kid. On the bench you know is is it doogie Hauser or what who is that up there on the bench, and I probably overplayed it a little bit too much myself you know to just to try and and um, validate that a young person could be here, but as I grew into the role and realized you know what it takes to be a judge and and all of the education that the at that time, the Indiana Judicial Center, which is now called the Office of Judicial Administration, but the Indiana Judicial Center, the the development courses they had, you know, the uh, just the continuing education for judges, excellent, and you know, helped me hone my skills.
0: Definitely, um, you know, being the first Asian judge in Indiana history, what does that mean to you? What did it mean to you then, and what does it mean to you now that you've had you know some years to kind of think about that?
2: The funny thing is, is when I was elected in 1984. Um, I had no idea that I was the first Asian judge. It it didn't come up. And I probably was on the bench, I bet, hmm, probably 15 years or so before someone approached me with the question of, you know, who who else are Asian judges in Indiana? Was there ever an Asian before you? That's how I found out, you know, I, I did my own digging. And uh, discovered that I was, but it wasn't something that was out there on my resume in 1984, because I had no idea. And what what I'm most proud of is that we now have an active Asian American bar here in Indiana. Of course, being in Southern Indiana and Lawrenceburg, you know there there weren't any other Asian lawyers down there. In fact, there weren't too many other Asians, period, within the general population. Come up here, you know, and for the Supreme Court, work for them as the head of the disciplinary commission, and all of a sudden, I'm in a more diverse population pool, and <clears throat> a number of you know Asian American lawyers here in Central Indiana, and we start you know associating with each other and. The National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, it's called NAPABA, they reached out to Melissa Lynn, who's an Asian American lawyer in uh, Columbus, Indiana, and uh, kind of lit the fire under her to try and get a uh, affiliate of the national organization going here in Indiana. And they reached out and told her, they said, and there's a judge over there that's Asian and contact him. So... <laughs> Melissa and I and Nick Wong and his sister, Kelly, we were the kind of the base that got this started, oh gosh, 10 years ago now, 10 or 11 years ago, we started the association and we've got about 40 to 50 paid members. So we're still a small organization. We don't have a you know professional staff, don't have an executive director, it's all volunteer. But uh, we've made uh, some big strides. Uh, for our organization and within uh, the local bar,
0: why has that topic of diversity been so important to you, especially with the Asian Pacific bar and just continuing to stay involved? And, and...
2: well, as a whole, not just Asian Americans as a minority, but all minorities. As you know, I've spent a, a career on the bench, and and this isn't meant to be a slight at all to my colleagues on the bench. But as I went to those. Uh, annual judicial conferences, and you know, and and spring and winter conferences, and and you notice that there's uh, definitely a, a lack of diversity throughout the room. And as the discussion or the conversation on diversity, you know, keeps progressing through the 80s and the 90s, and it's okay. Now I recognize, and my experience on the bench, you know, I recognize why. The bench needs to look like the society that it is administering justice to. And there are nuances uh, that no matter how much, uh, if you're um, Caucasian and you think, you know, that you really got a handle on uh, an understanding of black America or Asian America, Hispanic or Latino and vice versa, you know, that you're Asian. And you're, you identify as white and you think you got a good handle on it, on understanding the Caucasian point, and you don't. They're just nuances of the cultures. And those sometimes present themselves in the courtroom, and you need to be sensitive to it. You need to be aware of it. Just to give an example, I watched a, a program on diversity In the judiciary recently and there were one two three four panelists and a moderator and all five were white and they're talking about diversifying the judiciary if this panel was occurring in 1950 i would understand why that panel was all white and i would also understand that they are trying to advance uh diversity out of goodwill, out of understanding because of what society was like in 1950 and and they're progressive and trying to get that message out. But in 2023 when that discussion is about diversifying the bench, we need to diversify the bench and, you know, and and you see the panel is four white people and a white moderator, you know, the optics don't look good. And There's probably some things said during that particular program that I was watching where the people really, in the goodness of their heart, thought they were saying the right things, but probably missed the point completely because they don't have the full understanding.
0: You know, has there been some progress in diversity over the years? And, you know, what are some of the barriers that are still prevalent today that maybe, you know... During your time on disciplinary commission, or even before that, that are still existing that need to be addressed better in Indiana.
2: The one thing I'm not afraid to say at all uh, is that the appointments to the Indiana Supreme Court and the Indiana Court of Appeals over the last um, oh two and a half three years have all been appointments of either white males or white females, and Indiana at this point. I believe Judge Rudy Pyle might be the only minority on the appellate bench. I got to think for a minute here. I need a picture book in front of me to to verify that. But in any event, uh, the appointments that have occurred uh, for the last three years or more, and there's been a number of appointments, have all been uh, white, male, or female appointments. But at the same time, the number of applicants of people of color, people of diverse culture, ethnicity, the pool of applicants has been either non-existent or very small. So, it, you know, it cuts both ways. The there needs to be more applicants of people of color and people of diverse backgrounds, and how we how we stimulate that pool, you know, how we get those folks to um, come out from behind their desks and apply because it's an open application process for those positions. We as a profession and even our uh, affinity bars, so the Marion County Bar Association, uh, the Asian Pacific American Bar of Indiana, uh, organized Latino Hispanic Bar, we need to prop up and promote and groom uh, candidates for those positions. Now, another thing on the appellate side of the appointments is if you look at a lot of these appointees, they never got the appointment on their first time. You know, several of the last appointments have been, I think, people who got the appointment on their third try. And that's just the way the process works. Unless someone is really stellar and just, you know, jumps out and gets it on their first try, that is more um, the exception than the norm. And what we have also seen is when there have been minority applicants and they don't make it to the final three for interviews with the governor, when that next opening comes, they don't apply and so you know they end up being one and done but not one and done like we think about in college basketball or football you know it's one and okay i go back to what i was doing i didn't get you know selected in the draft (laughs) as a first round draft choice and so they need to be diligent nose to the grindstone and come back again and apply and come back again and apply you know it's not that everything is Tilted against the minorities, but you know the minorities have have a role to play too, and they need to step up. Now, one other angle to this whole topic is the judicial nominating commission itself, and it has been primarily uh, a white body for its entire existence. Uh, currently, there is a uh, uh, Hispanic or Latino member of the commission and I'm pretty sure he is the first minority on the commission since it was created. And I believe the commission was created, I want to say 1972. I might be incorrect on that, but it's somewhere in the early 70s. So again, those people that are in the position of selecting who the final three candidates will be needs to reflect better of the makeup of society. However, you got to have three of those positions are elected by the lawyers across the state. And again, you have to have people of diverse backgrounds step up and run for those positions. You know, if it's all Caucasians running for it, then, you know, that's who gets elected. But it, it sure would. And then there's three other positions on there, and those th- three seats are appointed by the governor. So that's one where the, whoever is the governor, uh, you know, could... Uh, a little bit more uh, sensitive to what the makeup of those three gubernatorial appointees looks like.
0: You know, switching over to uh, your time on the disciplinary commission, uh, first of all, how did that job come about for you? You know, what was that experience like compared to being a trial court judge?
2: Uh, I will say it was a very good experience, excellent experience. If you do the job of trial judge correctly, especially in rural communities, is a very, very lonely job because if you're doing the job correctly, you are patrolling against ex parte communications all the time. You are avoiding being a part of the Friday night poker gang with, you know, four or five other lawyers that practice before you all the time. Uh, you avoid membership in the local country club because the lawyers are there and you don't want to be in the regular foursome on, you know, Saturday mornings for the golf, uh, outings. And so if you do the job knowing to try and avoid all of those appearances to the community, it's not an appearance of impropriety at all, but it's an appearance to the community that, uh, you know, they're out there, they're buddy, buddy, things are probably, getting fixed up, you know, more cases get settled on the ninth hole than they do, you know, those types of comments are out there in the public. And so when I came to the disciplinary commission, all of a sudden now I'm in a room with lawyers and I actually get to talk to them and don't have to worry about it. It's parte communication, you know, and, uh, and all of a sudden I'm in an area where we talk about the law every day. Whereas when I was a judge, Yeah, I talked about the law every day, but it was an argument in the courtroom where two different lawyers are trying to persuade me to a particular decision. And rather than let's sit down over a cup of coffee or let's sit down over a beer and talk about this and, you know, educate me. It's, you know, you're in an adversarial situation in the courtroom. So. Getting to the commission and actually for the first time in over 25 years, being able to sit down with a group of lawyers and talk the law. And when I have had to make decisions, are we going to open this investigation? Are we going to charge this person? You know, rather than it being a uh, unilateral decision by me, you know, it was, hey, I got 10 other lawyers on staff here. You know, I can bounce things off. And then we have to take it to a commission. And the commission is a nine-member commission made up of seven lawyers and two laypersons. And so I had seven more lawyers to talk the law with. So I would say my 11 years at the disciplinary commission, I became a much, much better lawyer overall because uh, I was in an area where I I wasn't in a vacuum, you know, I, I could talk a whole lot more and not worrying about oh am i exposing prejudices am i saying something that's going to get me a motion for change of venue from the judge or or whatever um so that's what was nice about the transition and the other thing i'll say about it's really it was really a great experience because knowing that 99% of the bar supported what we did and the other 1% of the bar is what kept us employed
0: has the disciplinary commission, or I'm sorry, has the disciplinary process changed at all? And uh, I guess should it if, it, if it hasn't?
2: It definitely, there were things that we did um, during uh, my time there that changed our approaches to uh, how we screen cases. There was a huge backlog, enormous backlog when I got there. The Backlog of just waiting to get on the agenda of the monthly meeting of the commission was about three years. So, if something came in today, it would be almost three years before the commission looked at it and voted whether or not to bring charges against a lawyer. And that was just uncalled for, absolutely uncalled for, but it existed. And Rather than just throw more resources at that backlog, it was, hey, let's step back and let's think about how we process our cases here um, and what can we do to expedite that. And we were able to knock out that backlog. We were able to keep it so that we had at any time in the queue maybe 35 to 40 cases at a time in the queue, working its way through investigation. Because that, that backlog was, was over 300 cases with investigations or waiting to be investigated. And we were able to work that down to a process where if the number got up to 50 in the queue, then, uh, okay, it's time for, you know, that's red lights and sirens going and um when we finally well when i left i know that we maybe only had two or three months out of the probably eight years that we operated under our uh improved knew it improved um where we hit that 50 number and i remember one of the times we hit that 50 number is because it was one lawyer and he had like 17 different complaints against him
0: so so that was an artificial inflation sure Going back to the the Asian Pacific American Bar Association, um, you know, I guess why is it important to to have this bar association? You kind of mentioned it earlier a little bit uh, moving forward, but what kind of opportunities does it offer to its members?
2: What it offers to its members is the opportunity to engage with other people that have had similar experiences uh, in life in growing up. It also opens the door, uh, gives, Those lawyers, uh, um, another avenue to um, become a part of the broader bar across the state. We get inquiries from uh, time to time where someone is looking particularly for an Asian American lawyer because the uh, litigation is one that somehow has some sort of uh, Asian connection or overtones to it a lot of times those types of requests are coming either from the East Coast or the West Coast. But it's, you know, litigation that's going to happen in Indiana. And uh, so the West Coast lawyer, the East Coast lawyers are Asian and they're wanting to find Asian lawyer in Indiana to be co-counsel. So those are advantage. And Asian industry is huge in Indiana. You know, if, if we were sitting here doing an IBJ instead of Indiana lawyer and talking about Asian business, you know, India, I think Indiana is still the only state that has all three major Japanese automakers have a footprint. So we got Honda, Toyota, and Subaru uh, all have manufacturing facilities here. And I don't think there's any other state in the United States that has all three within its boundaries. Uh, and then you've got all the satellite industries that go with that. You know our uh governor daniels governor pence governor holcomb uh all have had um initiatives and and uh trade visits to uh asia
0: and just so not just that i remember i used to work down in seymour and the mayor of seymour would go to japan because oh you know, um eisen uh i think it's eisen is down there um but a big manufacturing uh facility with japanese connections mm-hmm. um so you know, think of small town Seymour, Indiana, and the mayor's going to Japan for for business deals. I mean, that's pretty significant.
2: Yeah, you know, if it was Lawrenceburg, it was okay. I'm going to Las Vegas to negotiate with some gambling people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, that's a, you're you're exactly right. You know, you have those connections, and you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the mayor of Greensburg has done that, or the mayor of Lafayette, probably. You know, so so those opportunities come up. I I can tell you another avenue we've had several times is in divorce situations and husband and wife are both of Asian heritage and uh, they're going to get divorced and uh, one or both want a lawyer that has Asian culture understanding representing them in the divorce process. So And when we talk Asian, I'm not talking just East Asian because Asia also includes India and Pakistan. And, you know, we have uh, a significant membership within our organization from uh, South Asia, as well as East Asia and Central Asia, which is uh, China. Uh,
0: What is something you would like lawyers to know about the Bar Association and or yourself? About the Asian Pacific Bar Association?
2: Yes. Yes. um, Something I'll give plugs. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In uh, November of 2023, Indianapolis will be the host of the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association annual convention. So Nepava is bringing its convention here, and we would sure uh, like for the Indiana business community to uh, roll out the red carpet and, and welcome the attendees to this uh, convention. Uh, the annual convention brings in about 2,500 lawyers and also for lawyers that are uh, looking for some CLE, we're going to have a program on May 4th and uh, watching the Indiana Lawyer because I'll be getting a, uh, uh, some promo materials out there to Olivia or someone to promote this program, but we're going to have Karen Korematsu. Uh, as a speaker, and uh, also show a film called And Then They Came for Us. Uh, The film is about internment of Japanese-Americans during World War II, narrated by George Takei, uh, also known as Mr. Zulu in Star Trek. And uh, then uh, Karen is the daughter of Fred Korematsu. And Fred Korematsu is the Japanese-American U.S. citizen who defied the internment of japanese americans and um challenged it was convicted of a crime for failing to report to an internment camp took it all the way to the u.s supreme court uh supreme court did not rule in in fred's favor and um said because you know there's an exception because of wartime and national security that it was okay to deny freedom deny Uh, due process of law to the Japanese Americans for the internment after the attack on Pearl Harbor. So Fred is Karen's father, and uh, Karen goes around and does promotions on uh, educating and advancing civil liberties and making sure that it doesn't happen again. And the Fred Korematsu Institute was very instrumental and had a part in, after 9-11, stepping up and And as well as Napaba did, too, of, you know, don't go down this road again and just say, okay, we need to start rounding up everybody that is Muslim and put them in a detainment area. You know, first of all, how do you determine what is Muslim? You know, people don't look Muslim because Muslims are a religion. (laughs) Muslim is not a physical appearance. Um, But nevertheless, you know, we went through that scare in 2001. And Napaba and... Matsu Institute are out there, you know, hey, put the brakes on. And President Bush at the time did put the brakes on, said, hey, folks, stop, wait a minute, let's, let's rethink this. So, uh, so that's why I want to get out there. You know, we're going to have Karen May 4th watching the Indiana Lawyer for the uh, details of that. And um, hopefully, uh, if you have the opportunity to come by the JW Marriott, the second weekend in November for the national convention, uh, and register. We'll have. I know they will have some excellent speakers. Top notch continuing
0: education. The national convention. Um, I guess how many states have Asian Pacific Bar Associations? How does that kind of work? Where is everyone coming from?
2: NAPABA, the national organization, is headquartered in Washington D.C., but um, you know has membership uh, across the United States as well as outside U.S. jurisdiction. I don't know the exact total membership. Of the organization, but uh, as far as affiliates of the national organization, we're the only one in Indiana. There's also here amongst our neighbors there's one in Columbus, Ohio, one in Cincinnati, one in Chicago, Minneapolis, I think St Louis fly over territory not as as much, you know in the Dakotas or. Uh, Denver definitely has, uh, and Salt Lake also has, uh, affiliates, but then you get to the California, Oregon, Washington, Hawaii, and a number of organizations there, a number of affiliates, I should say. And likewise on the East coast. And I know that, um, about one third of the entire membership of the organization, national organization is from California.
0: That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Senior Judge Mike Whitty for joining us on this week's pod. To catch up on previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast, visit theindianalawyer.com or your favorite streaming service.